This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. And if you like what you're hearing, which, come on, let's face it, you do. Make sure to tell a friend. You can find us on iTunes, the app, or my site, AllisonRosen.com. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with perfect good times never end. Allison Rosen, doing the wavy pencil pants again. Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I am sitting here with Kelly Carlin, daughter of George Carlin. And, Bre- and Brenda Carlin. And Brenda Carlin. I mean, you know, it did take two. You're right. I feel like a jerk. <laughs> no, I didn't want to say – I didn't say it to make you feel like a jerk. No, I just it's true, wanted though. to give Brenda, my mother props. Yeah, I gave Brenda short shrift. Yeah, you know, and she – I bet I'm not the first. She did a lot. No, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. There was a lot of drinking over that. Right, right. <laughs> so you have a one-woman show. I do. Which is your second one-woman show. Okay, so the, the current one, yes. which will be in New York in the fall, a Carlin Home Companion, Life, Love, and Laughter with George. But you before that, you had one called Driven to Distraction. Yes. So many questions about what the one-woman shows are about. But first, the one-woman show, that's a tough format. You know, it is. And yet... Um... <sighs> You know, you kind you grow up the daughter of a monologist, you become a monologist. Right. You know, I mean, and the thing, the funny thing is, I love doing like sketch comedy, and I love writing in collaboration, and I'm a very community oriented person. But uh, it felt safer to start my art form in a way that I could have total control over it, and wasn't going to disappoint other people on stage. <laughs> Interesting. So it's not it's not being a control freak. A little bit of that, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And then also the whole thing about like, I mean, I didn't have, I didn't feel confident in my acting chops back then, mm-hmm. you know. So I was always worried about, oh, everyone else is going to be better than me and all that kind of stuff. So, and I had something to get off my chest. So that's what you do. And I'm not a stand up comedian. So mm-hmm. it's the solo show direction, basically. Right. Yeah. So you – what did you want to be – like when you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, Lily Tomlin. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Lily I saw, Tomlin like in um, uh, Big Business or All of Me? No, Lily Tomlin in Laugh-In. Like, like any character that she did. You know, I, uh, Lucille Ball, um, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, any of those le- lovely ladies. Carol Burnett, really – you know that yeah that's I, who I would be yeah and I was lucky enough to be friends with her daughter in junior high so Carrie Hamilton Carrie yeah Carrie and I were friends I loved her in Shag which is a movie that not enough people have seen <laughs> yes and she unfortunately is not with us anymore yeah it's very 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 sad cancer yeah I think it was brain cancer in her in her mid thirties just a freaking yeah nightmare. It's so sad yeah absolutely. But those are the ladies who like lit something up inside of me. And I thought, wow, they're silly and goofy. And yet, look, they're successful and they're, you know, respected and and all of that. And there was something about the whole feminine thing, like women who have to be beautiful to Mm -hmm. be accepted and loved. And I didn't know if I fit in that category. And I was a tomboy most of my life. So I probably didn't want to fit in that category. Right. There's something else about all those women um, that I respond to is that none of their humor is mean. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all based from beautiful observation of humanity. 
You know, it just makes us all go, oh, good, we're safe. We all do that. We're all kind of semi stupid and broken inside in some way. Yeah, (laughs) it's very true. Yes, there's no not mean comedy in their bones. I feel like that is a very comforting message. Yeah. This idea that we're all flawed and it's okay to own up to that. Well, for for me, it's like what I feel like my life's purpose is about is to make that message clear to people. Like, don't worry. I know we're all pretending that we're supposed to be perfect here and we all have these horrible perfection voices in our head. But um, really – we all have the same sick thoughts going on and and the same mean voices in our head. You and I are the same person. This is I like we not, are. It's slightly different words, uh-huh. but almost those same yeah. words. I have said that exact same mm. thing. Yeah. That, okay. Well, then let me ask you this because here's where I always sort of like here's a little mental eddy I get caught around. There are people though who uh who don't own up to feeling insecure or self-conscious. And I feel like they're the ones who ruin it for the rest of us because we look at them and we're like, oh, you know, but they, they don't have any of these weaknesses. Now, those people, deep down, do they, ha- do they realize, I mean, do they feel self-conscious? Are there people that are close enough to them that they admit that to? Or are they megalomaniacs or sociopaths, yeah, which to me is what you have to be to not have any self-doubt. For me, the clue is always that eventually in their life, the shadow of them, their personality comes out in some way, you know, and you find out that they, you know, kick their dog or they stole money from their parents or something, right. you know, some shadowy, you know, it's like the perfectionism that like the Christians hold themselves up to be, you know, and then you find out the guy's tapping his foot in a stall. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. It's like, what is driving you to need absolution so frequently? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that fear of, of being human, you know, we all have that fear because if we're really human and we really accept it, then we're also going to accept that we're going to die someday. And yeah. I think it's all like basically fear of death at the, at the end of the day. I so especially growing up, I would I would um, have these overly philosophical you know thoughts, and I would just think like, what what really is motivating everything? What motivates this feeling of this? And and even the desire to be included. Um, you know, in adolescence. And I do think so much of it is motivated by fear and death yeah. for of death. Yeah. Although Freud felt like it was not just death, right? Um, I think it was sex and death. Yeah. Well, you know, there was the death wish. He talked about that, you know, and, uh, but yeah, there was the, a lot of libido was a big, big thing for Freud. But, right. you know, I mean, I studied psychology and what I found when I studied psychology was, oh, every single theory just reflects that person's psychology yeah. and their need to try to work out their insanity in some sort of like objective theoretical way. Right, so, you know? right. <laughs> so That's sort of disillusioning, though, insightful. Yeah, but but, you know, it just goes to show you that it's like we're all just trying to – map our way through all of this, you know, and, and sometimes I think it's just about if we could just remember all to be kind to each other, then I think we'd be okay. Yeah. I think we'd all be okay on the planet. But that's, that's, that even that's really, really challenging for humans. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you think it is, uh, okay, starting with the, the, the controversial stuff. Do you think it's easier for women to just be kind? Um... I think we are... Because there's a lot of bitches out there. Yeah, there are. Absolutely. And, um, I, you know, I think some of that caretaking kindness, 
you know, it comes from the fact that we are plugged into like our oxytocin more, you know, it's the bonding chemical. So I think part of it is hardwiring. A lot of it's cultural. Certainly, you know, we're told to be nice and, you know, we grow up to be quiet and all that stuff, even though in this culture, we don't think that's what we're being taught, but it's still subliminally, definitely there. there, Uh, And, and I do, I think it is possibly easier for women to be nurturing. And certainly we can be bitches and mean. And, and I think that's kind of sometimes that's, you know, if we're being feeling threatened, that's where we go. And, you know, because when a mama bear feels threatened, you don't want to get between her and her cub. So it might be kind of like that being triggered, that mama bear, like, right thing, you know, and that that's pretty scary and ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the the reason I asked, and I don't, I, I don't know what I actually think, uh, regarding that question, like what my answer would be. But I was thinking, well, if we could all just be kind, then I was thinking, but there's this this impulse towards aggression. Mm-hmm. And that stands in the way of it so often. And I think that men express the aggression in an outward way more probably. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, and once again, I think it's part hardwiring and part cultural. I think men are, you know, have a, a physical superiority to women just naturally. And... Uh, and then, yeah, they're taught to be the providers and the defenders, and that's kind of naturally, I think, who they were. Uh, but, um, but you know, it's interesting, too, you know, like evolution, you know, people always point out the competitive aspects of evolution. But, you know, um, Darwin wrote a lot about cooperation, too, and then people never talk about that, that we don't get to where we are without cooperating with each other yeah. as a species or any species, you know, but certainly humanity. I know we are a social animal. We're a mammal. So, uh, you know, people forget about that, that cooperation part. It's, it's as probably even more important than the competition part. Yeah. Um, okay. So all these women that you looked up to, Mm -hmm. were these women that did your, was your dad a fan of? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, I watched my mom and dad and I, we watched all those shows together and, um, you know, you learn what's funny from your parents. Mm-hmm. When you see them laugh, you're like, oh, wow. You know, and of course you have your own sense of humor, but you also see like, oh, that's kind of okay. Or it's got the stamp on it. And uh, so, yeah, definitely my, my dad uh, respected and loved all those mm-hmm. women. So that's what you wanted to be when you were little. And yeah. then as you got older, um, what direction did you start going? You know, it was weird because I uh, had, like in high school, I had envisioned myself, like Monty Python was big and the first years of Saturday Night Live were big and when I was in high school. And, and where did you grow up? I grew up here in LA mm-hmm. and went to a place called Crossroads, which is full of rich, famous kids <laughs> who have lots of access to money and drugs and absolutely no responsibility at all. It was quite a fun High school. There's years. like a Rolodex of, of celebrities that have gone there. Yeah. Going through my head. Yeah. I was yeah. there way, way in the early years. Uh, so, you know, there was some ki- there was some kids. But we, but it's like it was a different time then. It was like, yeah, it was Hollywood. But there wasn't TMZ and there wasn't reality TV mm-hmm. and there wasn't this, I don't know, this obsession with it all. I mean, it was cool, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, like these people weren't gods or something like right. that. Um. But yeah, and I I thought that I would go that direction, you know, and and wanted to acting and performing and and writing stuff. Um, but uh, for ten years, I got involved in a very complicated 
a relationship and got married to an older man and it was very, I got panic attack disorder and snorted too much cocaine and basically lost my way for about 10 years. Um, and came out of that eventually, I, I eventually went back to UCLA and got my uh, degree, my bachelor's in communications, but never felt like, I mean, it was really, really hard for me to feel like I had the goods in this town. It was, there was so much pressure just, and I didn't even like, I don't think I articulated it to myself, but I guess I felt a lot of pressure like, boy, if you're going to do it, you better be really good at it because you're, you know, whose daughter mm-hmm. and, um, so I I just shied away from all of that. And did you put that onto yourself, or did other people? Put I think that on I you? I did. I definitely did. I had a huge perfectionism issue, mm-hmm. definitely. And um, and you know, I mean, it's one thing to have like a successful dad, but it's another thing to have a guy who, like everyone says, is like a groundbreaker and a cultural shaper, and right. like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like someone who's going to leave a legacy. Uh, so much. So I, 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 I skirted on the edge a lot of the entertainment industry, doing behind the scenes stuff, doing a little bit of acting classes and stuff, but never really, really fully jumped in. Always felt really intimidated by it all. Didn't mm-hmm. didn't see that I could have the goods like everyone else um, and just didn't. So did, therefore didn't try for a long time, you know, sat at home going, I wish I could, but I don't know how. Uh, at what age did you start hearing that he was groundbreaking? Uh, well, you know, it, it kind of, I, I don't really know. I mean, I just, I know that's like, it's people's reaction. I mean, I remember being little and hearing audiences be really intensely, you know, adoring him, <laughs> stomping, yelling his mm-hmm. name, things like that. And then in high school, guys I went to high school with, you know, would do his routines for me. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I don't. I think they wanted to date me, but that's not the right way to go about that. Right. Really, it's awkward. Um, and and then of course, you know, I would meet people, and the subject would come up, and people were like, "Oh my god," you know. So I don't really know when it was, but certainly into my twenties, I, I knew what was going on. I mean, I went to UCLA and took a First Amendment class, and the very first day of the First Amendment class, my professor said, uh, "One of my favorite things about teaching this class is we'll be doing." Uh, Pacifica versus FCC, and I'll get to read the seven dirty words to you by George Carlin. You know, it's those kind of moments where you're just out in the culture and people are quoting your father, right. you know, in, in some sort of weird way like that. You know, that's when you start to get, okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> did, what was, did you feel proud? Yes, always proud, always, always proud. And, and at that age, too, because I didn't have a real sure sense of myself – um, so I, a part of my sense of myself was that, you know, being connected to that and related to that. Right. It felt like, okay, well something, there must be something good inside here because I'm related to that, mm-hmm. you know, even if I, even though I haven't proven myself to the world yet. So, right. yeah. So, okay. So then there were the 10, the 10 lost years, which I want, <laughs> but I want to come back to. Yes. That's like a dessert on this plate right now. <laughs> but so then what happened? Cause you spent a lot, you spent time feeling like you didn't have the goods. And then when, when did you yeah, start? Yeah. My early thirties, I got a, I, 29, I got out of that relationship and graduated uh, UCLA at 30 and 
and met a new guy and had a real stable relationship. And we started writing together and started getting some traction with that. And, and I saw like, oh, this isn't rocket science. You know, maybe I do have some talent. And uh, but then really what happened was in 97, when I was 34, my mother died. And she was young. She was 58 years old. And she died very suddenly. She was like diagnosed with liver cancer. And six weeks later, she was dead. Wow. And so it was as if age when she was diagnosed. Yeah, she was far gone. And it was um, it had metastasized a bit. And she had had breast cancer 14 years earlier. But it was like separate kind of cancer from that because my mom Mm -hmm. had hep C. It was really just a nightmare. But when she died, I really had a huge, huge awakening. It was like oh, death is real. Like this is really happening. And you could be hit by a bus tomorrow. And boy, how much time does any of us have on the planet? Therefore, if I want to be doing my work in the world, I want to start doing it. And Mm -hmm. I started writing. And then it was, um, that was 97. By 99, I had decided and had was writing and in the thick of writing this first one woman show. And a kind of the thesis around the show was driven to distraction. So it was how our parents distract us as children, especially mine, because they were addicts and alcoholics and crazy. And my dad's, you know, career and lifestyle and everything. And then how we, the culture distracts us, our own choices with men and drugs and everything distract us. And then how literally my mother's death, the thing that you want to distract yourself from the most is the thing that taught me to no longer distract myself. So it was this kind of life irony going on. Mm-hmm. And and I so I told the story in this kind of two different levels, which was this ongoing kind of funny, crazy, chaotic story of my life with all these funny, wacky stories. And then between would be these kind of serious journal entries that I had written uh, a bit when it was happening, but kind of fleshed out and, and made them more, you know, more theatrical um, from the six weeks that my mother got sick and then died, you know, so it was this kind of back and forth two tiered reality. And um, it was really exciting and powerful to be able to stand on a stage and, and speak that finally. Yeah. Yeah. What was your relationship with your mom like? It was, it was really difficult early on. She was an al- alcoholic and she got sober when I was 12. So from like age five to 12, it was difficult. Mm -hmm. And then I had a lot of rage and confusion once she got sober. And then I hit puberty. It's like, oh, good timing, mom. (laughs) And then I started, you know, self-medicating myself. What did you start with? Marijuana. I stole roaches from my dad's stash. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they were there and I had, I'd been rolling joints since I was eight. So, you know. (laughs) I knew what they were Uh, and, uh, you know, and experimented with quaaludes and coke and mushrooms and all that fun stuff. And uh, so it was really kind of hot and cold with my mom for a long time. And then somewhere in my 20s when I was in that crazy first relationship marriage, um, she and I kind of came together and there was a healing. I had pretty bad panic attack disorder and she had had that earlier in her 20s also. So she knew and... She just kind of helped me through it in, in, in not an overtly way, but just was kind of there for me. And it was just very healing and lovely. Good. So by the time she left, we had a very close relationship. I mean, there was still baggage and stuff like that. But um, at least I felt like we had met in a new place, definitely. Mm-hmm. And were she and your dad together? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were together. They had been together since 1960. So it was like 27 years they'd been together. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that he... Like, what were his substance abuse? 
he uh, he did a lot of cocaine during those crazy years with my mom. He, both of them got into cocaine. So he'd always been a pot smoker, which was never an issue. He'd been a bit of a drinker, which really wasn't an issue. Certainly not like my mother. But cocaine made him a crazy man really full of rage and he was already slightly OCD and very mm-hmm. type A personality anal kind of guy and then you put cocaine on top of that right? and like anything that needed to be sorted in the house like I would come out in the middle of the night he would have he had this little chest of uh, little mini little plastic drawers that had like the the household nuts and bolts and paper clips and everything and he would have them all out and he'd be sorting like the nuts and bolts into separate separate sized drawers now, not just all nuts, no bolts, but now we're doing small, medium, large, you know, that kind of right. stuff. He would get crazy that way. But then he, he had a lot of rage issues during that time too. And he regretted a lot of that. But my parents had a lot of, they 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 went into rages with each other with that. That drug was not a good drug. I do not recommend that drug to anybody. Did you know at the time that they were doing coke? Yeah. Yeah. I, how, I mean, like, how old were you? I was um, like the bad, bad years were like 73 to 76. So I was like 10 to 10 to 13, 10 to 12, 10 mm-hmm. to 13, right around there. And uh, yeah, I knew it was going on. Yeah, I understood it. I didn't know what the drug did exactly, but I knew what it looked like. And I knew I and did you did they do it in front of you? Yeah, no, they try. I mean, my dad, after a while, you're so screwed up that you you do it in front of your kids. I mean, that's how crazy it was. Yeah. Um, and it was the kind of thing being an only child and all of you adult children of alcoholics and drug addicts out there, you can relate. Um, I could come home and I could tell you exactly what substances my parents were on, how much they'd been sleeping, if they had or had not. And you, you know, I could, I learned to read the room very, very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like that? has been a useful uh, gift in life or something that has like locked you up? Like how has that affected you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it can do both. Um, it can either make you overly concerned about what other people are thinking because you can read them so well or, and um, I can read a room really well. So as an entertainer or when I'm doing talks or leading workshops or doing, I used to be a therapist or doing, I coach also sometimes coaching people, you know, it's like I can live inside people's skin. So I can, I know exactly what to ask a person. I know how to shape a moment. I know Mm -hmm. how to, I know what the room needs. It's it's powerful to have, to be in touch with that power. Right. And and to use it for good (laughs) (laughs) and not use it against myself. But I've also had to learn to let go of, really, really let go of not caring what's going on inside of other people's heads just in normal day-to-day situation. How? How do you do that? <laughs> you know, I really think part of it's age. I do. I just turned 50 and I'm telling you it's the most fantastic thing ever because the culture basically and certainly as a woman you become sort of invisible which sounds like a nightmare which it is on some level. Um, but I cried my way through that. And uh, now I have total freedom because if the culture is not paying attention, then fine. I get to do whatever the fuck I want to do now. Yeah. It's really nice. And the other thing, too, is to really realize that um, most people are really self-absorbed and are in their own worlds. And they're really not thinking about you as much as you think they are. They don't care about you, what you're doing. And I think when you start to get that, then you can feel some freedom. Yeah, I had – I do think age must be part of it. I On my last birthday, I woke up and I just thought, I am way too fucking old 
to care about all this shit. Yeah. Like, I do, and then it's also you have that moment of like like you were saying the moment that you had of realizing that we're only given a short amount of time on this earth. And do I want my days to be shaped by all these concerns? Yeah. So I have – I do – I think I have more days where I – or an increasing number of days where I'm aware of that. But yeah. still, like those – the voices that make you feel uh, – like you need to cover up and 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 hide and all or feel weird, all of that. Like it's hard. It those is are loud. It it is really really hard, and those voices are really loud. And you know, I think that's why. Like, I I'm finally understanding like the importance of a daily practice, any kind of daily practice, whether it's a walk you do or yoga or meditation or dancing your ass off to disco. I don't care what it is, mm-hmm. but something that helps you connect to your sense of self and freedom. Every day to do something like that, that's the way to start a day because then you're, you're positioned properly. Right. Your GPS is on, your little inner GPS that like only you really know about and the thing that really is there to help you with your personal integrity. The thing that for years most of us ignore. Absolutely. <laughs> and the, the thing that most of us also was like, now which voice is it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always get that with, in right? there. There's so many voices. Which one am I supposed to listen <laughs> yeah. to? You know, and it's like, but when you, I think when you have a couple of experiences where you really feel connected to yourself and a sense of, uh, a kind of communal sense with the the place that you're in or the body or, or, or a, a community, no matter what it is, that that's the one. That's the one you want to remember. What's that? What does that resonance feel like? What does that vibration feel like? Um, do you remember the first time you really got in touch with that? Yeah. You know, there was always glimpses of it. And it's, it's actually interesting. I, I've been trying to write a book about my life and stuff like that for a gazillion years. Because, and there's 10,000 angles I could take yeah. with it. And now that I have the solo show about my family, I feel like that's done and I don't have to do that version, which is very – I'm very happy about that. Um, but there is something about these glimpses we all have. And I remember being really little, like seven or eight or nine, and looking in the mirror and having this weird experience of like – really seeing myself for the first time and really getting like, oh, my God, I'm a human being on Earth. Like it was this moment. I exist. Yes, I exist. And, I know, yeah. And these strange people are my parents, you know. like I had those moments. Yes, that, okay. I ha- yeah, that surreal. Yes. That like this familiar thing suddenly seems odd Right, and you feel like me. you've woken up from a dream yes. suddenly. Like oh, I've been dreaming for nine years and now I've woken up and I realize I'm here on Earth. Yeah. It's that thing in a sense, um, but as you get older, it's it's kind of more. Lately, I've been I I went into, up to Big Bear for five days, and I really really got a chance to like sink into that, like just oh, there's something about Earth also, like trees, Earth, me, human. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful poem. Yes, thank you. It's, it's my it's my Tuesday haiku. Uh, so yeah, there you know, but boy, there was like I said, decades where <clears throat> that wasn't very readily accessible. Definitely not. Yeah. So okay, let's talk about that then. Your your decades of well, decades. Decades. You say. So more than yeah. the ten year. Well, you know, it's it's when you're a kid, you're kind of you know, high school is crazy. Like who's yeah. in their body in high school? Now, do you also distrust people who loved high school? Because I that loved high school, I distrust them. You know, you know what I think. I don't really distrust them. I think um, 
boy, so everything's going to compare to high school for the rest of your life. That means there's a lot more years in front after yeah. high school that aren't going to live up to that perfection. And so you're going to live like the next 60 years really disappointed. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I distrust them. Maybe I just pity them <laughs> in some way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. When pe- for people for whom college were the best years, I weirdly give them a pass probably because I really liked college. Yeah. But if high school was the best four years of their life, then I'm always – I just don't I, understand. I, yes. I, I, fe- I feel like I'm not going to relate to them. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to relate to those right. people. Definitely not. Yeah. No. All right. So yeah. So high school is uh, – Confusing for everyone, Truly. I think. Yeah. It's a hormonal nightmare. Right. <laughs> and you're in between being your own person and not being your own person yeah. and figuring out your place in the world. And you so want to be an individual, but you want everyone to love you and you want to be the same as everyone at the same yes. time. I mean, what kind of crazy making is that inside of a psyche? Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's a hell. So was it, it was at 18, is that right, when you got yeah, met the guy? Yeah, I met this you, guy. Okay. Yeah. He was 10 years, 11 years older than me, had a kid. He was a Coke dealer. He was a car mechanic slash Coke dealer. And oh, what's not to love? Right? Hello. And he had, was on probation for a um, a federal weapons charge for designing and manufacturing silencers for AR-15s for his doctor and lawyer friends in Beverly Hills. He was like a guy. So he was connected. He, yeah, and he was a person. He was like a, one of those geniuses. Like at nine, he was taking apart the TV and putting mm-hmm. it back together and fixing it because he was a mechanical genius. Right. So for him, making a silencer of a gun was just like this interesting mechanical, like, let's go to the hardware store and figure it out kind of a thing. He mm-hmm. didn't really do it in any sort of way. Um, but yeah, he was a real winner. How did, you, how did you meet him? <laughs> he fixed my car. Uh, my dad had given uh, had hand me down a uh, an old BMW, and I'd gone to this gas station, and uh, he specialized in these cars. You know, so it was fate, clearly, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's like my teenage mind was like, oh, it's destiny. And he spoon fed me cocaine, which you know, had, he, but had you already done it? Oh the, yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah, yeah. But this was really good shit. <laughs> <laughs> And he was nothing like the boys I'd been hanging out with. I mean, I, I'd been in a nasty, emotionally abusive relationship with a guy and I'd been confused and didn't really know how to be with guys without being like a total doormat. And here was this guy who was like loving and adoring me and kind of putting me up on a pedestal and it felt really good. So the cocaine yeah. felt good. The pedestal <laughs> felt good. And, you know, he taught me how to have an orgasm. So it was he was a triple threat at that point. So and I the, gave my life to him. Did the fact that he was older feel good too? Because I went through a phase of always liking older guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think – well, I think I was always mature for my age in some ways, really not mature in other ways. Mm-hmm. But um, I was always – you know, as a kid, I hung out with the adults all the time. So I always felt older yeah. than everyone around me and I was kind of always like, oh, people my age, whatever. <laughs> uh, so yeah. But he acted literally like his – emotionally, he was 14. So – it kind of fit. Right. But you were with him for 10 years? I was. How I'm was that? Insane, stupid, crazy. Looking back on it now, I thought, really, I could have just really walked away at any time. But he was very possessive, very controlling, a little creepy in that way. And it kind of scared me. But I knew seven years, six or seven years into it that it was over. But I didn't know how to get away. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of slowly plotted my escape route. And then finally um, felt. Like, you know, back then, this is how I used to operate in my life. I'll just get to the point where I feel like either I have to leave or commit suicide. Like, those are my two options. And then I'll leave because I don't really want to kill myself. 
over the decades, I've learned a little better. I I, well, I, st- I stop quicker why, things I don't like. Why? 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 Why was that your thought pattern? Do you think? Like what? What did that oh, afford I was, you? I was an absolute textbook codependent case. I mean, be, growing up in my parents' household, I was the caretaker of my parents, completely codependent to them. So I just learned how to. That's how you are in a relationship, in a mm. loving relationship. You just completely sacrifice yourself for the whole. And even if it's not working, you stick it out because you have to be the hero in it all and, and be the uh, better person, and rise above it and all that crap. And uh, and I, I truly didn't understand that I could that er- that everyone would survive if I left. You know, it, it, the thing about being a, a kid in a codependent household is that you get this false sense of power. You think that you're actually in charge of your parents' relationship and that if you do certain things, it is helping. Yeah. And it really isn't, but you get this false sense of power. So I had that false sense of power in a relationship. I really thought if I left him, he would fall apart and die or whatever, and I would ruin his life. And so I couldn't now, have- Did he actually say that stuff as well? And he did. He yeah. did. So he fed into that, certainly. Um, so that was, you know- that was a little overwhelming to think that. And then finally, but finally did. It was like his life or mine. It came down to that. And I was at least sane enough to say, okay, it's my life. Well, at that point, what was going on? Uh, it's just kind of the same old, same old. I, I was in the middle of UCLA. So I was out of the house socializing, seeing how the real world, I'd, I, I'd stopped doing cocaine for a few years. I was. Did you go through a program? No, he did. He had to go into like full on rehab and everything mm-hmm. like that. I just was like done. Um, and so I was getting my life together and seeing how the world was and, and getting a lot of great feedback from the world from this program. I was at UCLA and my writing teacher was amazing and talking to me, telling me what a great writer I was and was just taking kind of natural leadership positions and thought, and then I would come home and completely shut down and think, wow, there's two different planets here I'm living on. Mm-hmm. And it just became more and more and more separated and, and easier to see that, oh, I'm living at home in the false world, yeah, not the authentic world that I wanted to be in. Do you feel like he ever got you, if it's accurate to say he didn't get you? What, what I'm hearing when this, the sort of the dichotomy between that world versus coming home and shutting down was because he probably it was all about him and he didn't yeah. you weren't connecting Ex- extremely narcissistic yeah was it is that how he was from the beginning no i mean in the beginning he was cherishing of me and would say things like i really believe in you and your talent and everything and then i'd go off to acting class and he would get jealous if i was gone for five hours it was a lot of mixed messages yeah you know so there was this sense of you can do anything but don't do it for longer than three hours away from me <laughs> <laughs> So it was just bullshit. Yeah. It was just he was a controlling, yeah. terrified man and, you know, had a lot of issues. And I believed that I could fix him because I was all-knowing, clearly not. <laughs> so how did it go when you left? It was interesting. Uh, he, I said, uh, do not call me for three weeks. I need to take some time out. So I, I kind of was letting him down. So like, I need to go think about this. <laughs> I knew exactly. There was no thinking. Right. And I said, I, I, you need to not call me for three weeks and let me be. And within five hours, every 10 minutes he was calling. And then I finally said. Well, at least he respected your wishes. Yeah, he did. He was very good about that. Boundaries. Big issue with boundaries. Yeah. And uh, it, you know, I just, 
I thought at one point, you know what, I'd be willing to change my name and move to another city if I had to get away from this man. And the first few weeks, I slept with a gun underneath my pillow because I really wasn't quite sure what he might do. Because mm-hmm. he wow. would say things like, "If you know, if I can't love you, no one can love you and kind of stalkerish, weird things like that. Did he ever do anything? No. No. He didn't. At what point did you get a gun? Oh, he was into guns the whole time. So we we had had, guns. Yeah. We had guns. So I just had my own gun. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Do you still have one? Uh, we have a we have a couple shotguns, and I do. I still have the rifle that he bought me a gazillion mm-hmm. years ago. I do have that rifle. Every once in a while, my husband takes it out and goes, you know, skeet shooting or whatever they do with it now. But there's so no your husband fires the gun that your other husband gave. Yeah, you. it's a cool gun. It's a nice bird <laughs> gun. So you know, <laughs> there you go. Um, did you do Al-Anon or any of the things? I did. Stuff? I did Al-Anon and I did Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACA, a little while. Mm-hmm. I did. And it, those programs are amazing and really good and really educational. You really get, A, that you're not the only person doing this in your life. And you do get to question your thinking. Um, and then I think after a few years, uh, most of us are ready to move on from those programs. Um and because a lot of victims stay in those programs and they just want to be victims and just tell their victim story all day long. And right. that, that gets very irritating and depressing to me. Um, but there's a lot of good, healthy people in those programs and good work. And uh, if you're in a relationship like that, I highly recommend going to something like that because your mind will be blown about just you will learn so much about yourself mm. that you did not know. Because that's the thing. We think we know everything because we're like, I'm the all-powerful caretaker. I remember my husband went to rehab and I went to the family meeting, the first therapy session with all the family members. And I told my story. And uh, the therapist looked at me and she goes, you know, you're sicker than he is. (laughs) I was like, what? No, I'm the perfect one. I've sacrificed everything for this man. She's like, exactly. That was a wake-up call day. Did you reject them yeah at first I did I was like fuck you and everything and then she ended up becoming my therapist oh wow (laughs) because ultimately I knew it was the truth yeah yeah um how did you meet your husband the man my husband now now, Bob uh I met him through a friend they worked at a tv show together and uh yeah we met him I met him uh I met him briefly at the office and then uh met him at a barbecue that she was having and I taught him how to play patty cake in the kitchen <laughs> and uh that was pretty much it how how had he gone through life not knowing <laughs> well, you know some guys don't always learn the patty cake right. thing you know or they want to but they're kind of embarrassed to ask so <laughs> um were you worried at all about repeating unhealthy patterns oh completely yeah my mom was like don't because I had been a not a long time between leaving, although I'd emotionally left my first husband Andrew f- f- quite a few years later, but um, but I and I and yes, and I agreed with her. Like you know, I probably should go out and get my own apartment, and I did all that stuff, and you know, and I started down that road. But this man, this incredible human being, came into my life, and I'm like. Gee, all I have surrounding me is really unhappy single friends, you know, dating really obnoxious, horrid men. So, um, but my current husband, Bob, we've been together 21 years now. um, He was like a great guy. He was like, you need to go out and have your own life. Like I go out and hang out with my guy friends. You're not coming with me all the time. Like I I can go away for a few days and you can be. And I was like separate. (gasps) Like it took me a couple of years to physically learn how to be an autonomous person and I really feel blessed that I was able to do that in a loving relationship but it was hard yeah that's actually something that that just came up on a uh, 
another podcast, this challenge of being autonomous in a relationship. Sure. I am, I am facing that now and I'm realizing these, these ways in which there are things that I think, oh, this is a relationship issue. We should talk about it. But there's this little part of me that's like, or is this a me thing that I need to work out on my own? And yeah. I, I don't know how you figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, for me, I started to figure out when it was my own stuff when there'd be a lot of for me, I always check in with myself first, at least. That's how I kind of solve it now. It's like, you know, if he's doing a behavior that's irritating me or there's a pattern of some kind, it's like, look here first. Always look here first. Yeah. Clean your own house up. Once you do that, if you've cleaned it up a little bit or looked at your own whatever issues and it's still something that's damaging the space in between, then it's a relationship issue. But a lot of the stuff we do is all projecting in relationships. Yeah. 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 Um, so what you, you mentioned the importance of having a daily practice, whatever it is. What, yeah. What's yours? Uh, it's, it's a form of sitting meditation right now, definitely. Um, and sometimes just some dancing also really gets you in your body. Really, really does. Uh, but yeah, I've studied Zen, Buddhist meditation, mindfulness meditation for – God, like 16, 17 years now. And so I have a good foundational practice in that that I can sit into anytime I need to. But really, it's about just starting the day without the phone, without, especially these days now. It's like, so hard. Uh, there's some mornings where, you know, I was waking up and actually checking my Twitter feed the first thing. Like, really? Really, Kelly? That's what you're doing? Uh, I'm trying. That's what I do. Yeah, I know. It's bad, though. It is it's bad. It's bad because it gets your before brain. you're fully awake, you're annoyed. You're Yeah, and you're already engaging in the culture yeah. in a way that's – that's what I was saying. It's like it doesn't help your inner GPS system right. connect with you. You know, you're already connecting to what's the culture saying? What are these other voices saying? What are these – needs that, you know, yes, it's important that we get up and do our work in the world and everything like that. But make sure for me, I need to make sure what is my intention behind doing this work, you know, so I'm just finding that it's just important to not to unplug. Unplugging has become like, I think I'm going to become like the unplugging queen or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just and it's so funny, because I love Twitter, Facebook, I could really give a shit about but um I love that. I love the community it's created. I love the people I've met on it. Uh, but you have to have balance with it, you know, and we have to get reconnected to Earth. Otherwise, there's not going to be a species anymore. <laughs> it's so true. It's yeah. so – I have these these moments where – and by the way, I'm connecting with the first part of, of what you said, not the second part, which is actually the super deep important part. <laughs> but the part about – Boundaries and unplugging and Twitter, yeah, yeah. Um, where I think all this crap that's churning around in my head right now and making me feel like, oh, I have to do this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, like it only exists – it only exists in my head and on the screen and in no way is this actually – there's no real manifestation of this. Yeah. And if I just didn't read it, it wouldn't exist. And yeah. what, the hell, what the fuck am I doing to myself? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think that's a great question to ask is because you're the one doing it to yeah. yourself. I know. Well, that's another thing. If your Twitter feed annoys you, you and I keep almost tweeting this and it's like I – it's not really good. There's no good tweet to salvage from this. But if your Twitter feed annoys you, you have only yourself to blame because you chose to follow these Truly. people. And it's funny because I'm starting to shift who I'm following right now. I'm in this 
big, weird, interesting thing. I mean, when I first got on, I, t- I think I followed every single comedian and just comedy, 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 because I was very immersed in that world two and a half, three years ago. And um, and now I'm, I've got some of those people still on, but I've gotten rid of some of the real whiners that I don't need and <laughs> yeah. the ones that I don't really find funny. Uh, and I'm following more people who are kind of uh, not in a horribly bullshitty new agey way, but just people who are more conscious. Yeah. People who are interested in having an elevated conversation, but who also haven't lost their sense of humor. So not the horribly earnest ones <laughs> who drive me crazy and I want to slap, uh, but people who are still funny and grounded but are like really like we need to like have like there's a new conversation happening on this planet. I want to be part of that conversation. Yeah. Whatever it whatever it is that's emerging right now. Um you so you got your your bachelor degree in communications. In communications, yeah. But then you studied psychology, right? I did. After I did my one woman show, um it was interesting. I did that show, I wrote it, I showed it to my dad. It made my dad very uncomfortable. Really? Yeah. He's you know, my dad was a person who didn't talk about himself on stage. You know, he was the opposite of Richard Pryor in that way. Mm-hmm. Um but I uh I don't know, being a child of the sixties or whatever it is or a woman or just psychologically bent, I found I mean Karen Finley was one of my heroes. She's a performance artist who, you know, spread yams on her breasts. Uh, what can I say? Uh, Spalding Gray, another one of my heroes. Uh, so that was like my role model for my art form. And But I made my dad uncomfortable. And uncomfortable to the point where he wished that you hadn't done it? Uh, or? He said to me, I wouldn't, let, I, I wouldn't ask you to change anything, but I'm not coming to the performances. So he didn't support my art form in that yeah. way. And so at that – I was so vulnerable at that point because this was my first time doing this that I just – I was going to do a full-on six-week run and all of that and I ended up canceling it. And it ended makes up me want to cry a per- little bit. Performing it three times. Yeah. Oh. It was really – once it was my codependence showing up. Was the – but the actual show uh, – was it more about your mom or was it equally about both of It was of them? mostly about my mom, but there were parts where I – there was a few scenes that I talked about the insanity of the drugs and alcohol. Or and is, is that what, do you think that's what he was reacting to? Or? Yeah. I, actually, I talk about this in the show that I'm doing now and what the way I, I frame it now, which is what I really believe, is that <clears throat> he was – Dealing with his own issues of guilt from that time. He had a lot of guilt about those years for himself because he didn't have a lot of memory of it, first of all. So I think that scared him. And and I think he was worried that the audience was going to judge him. And the thing that I found about the first show and certainly about the show I do now is that the audience loves him so much more at the end because he's become this full human being. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the beginning of what we were talking, the very beginning of our talk just now is like, it's like, I'm willing to show that he was a full human being with these flaws. Whereas on stage, he presented more of a philosopher, master, father, teacher kind of Mm -hmm. energy. But everyone else related to him as Uncle George or the or the everyman at the same time. It was a really interesting kind of archetype he represented on stage um, that's the thing that i always try to impress upon people who are afraid to reveal things is that you don't understand when you this thing that you're most afraid of letting the world know about when you put it out there people respond to you with love usually yeah I almost I'm not even like always actually yeah. i think yeah when you're authentic you 
I don't think you ever regret that. But some people just – that's just not how that they're not yeah, going and, to ever do and that. And I don't know if it was my – part of it was generational. My, my dad was born in the late 30s um, or part of it just was this – perfectionistic part of him that he definitely had. I mean, he had very high high standards for himself. And that would have revealed that at times he didn't have high standards for himself. You know, he acted inappropriately. So Mm -hmm. I think that was hard for him to live with. But, um, but, you know, uh, so I think that's, that was partly why he felt uncomfortable with what I was writing at that time. And it was just, it was, it was so weird because Harry was saying, you know, I would never ask you to change a word of it, but I'm not coming to your show. And and for me, the codependent daughter, good girl that I was, it was like crushing. Yeah. And I mean, what did what did you hear in that that he didn't approve? Yeah, and that yeah, that he didn't approve and that I wasn't doing it right. Yeah. And that my art form wasn't as important or as good as his, you know, or that my voice wasn't as powerful as his or as needed as his. Um, But I don't think any of that was in there. But that's what I heard. Um, And so that's why I decided it was like at that point also I knew that the kind of show I was doing, I didn't – you know, a lot of people were doing one-person shows in the late 90s to get their sitcom. Like Mm -hmm. that was kind of part of the route was that thing. And that was not at all what I was interested in. I was interested in more – um, like my dad, a person who changed the world by his words. And I think that's why I was drawn to psychology at that point. It was like, well, let me go and get my master's and study this kind of inner world of people. And then when I come out, I'll have this writing ability, this performing ability, and this understanding of the human journey. And let me find a way to kind of weave them together. And what's so interesting is it's almost 10 years later, and I'm, I feel like I'm finally doing that fully, you know, a little bit with the show that I'm doing, but really with my podcast that I do and my writing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and did you, did you specifically study Jungian psychology? I did. I went to a place called Pacifica in Santa Barbara, this amazing place that uh, has uh, Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, they have his archives there. Oh, wow. I know. It's like so cool. It's like literally – it's like my version of church. Uh, and they uh, – Carl Jung and a bunch of other archetypal and imaginal psychologists. So it's very um, – there's a lot of story, a lot of art, a lot of earth, a lot of soul. And at the same time, you're studying psyche and psychology and, and how – you know, you can go and get your hours and become a, a marriage family therapist in California if you want from something like that. And mm-hmm. I started to do my hours and stuff. But – uh, you know how life is. I The people I, who started showing up at my doorstep, I was at this clinic in the Valley being an intern. And so comedians showed up, writers, kids of famous people. I mean, it was just really weird. Like the word started getting out. And so all these people who I was seeing and supporting were all pursuing the dream that I really had at the time. So it was like, I, I need to pursue the dream. And so I, I put that aside and, and went and got uh, certified as a coach just because then I could use all my training and do it anywhere and, you mm-hmm. know, without the state breathing down my neck, basically. How long did you practice or are you still? I was, uh, I practiced psychology just for two years uh, until 2006 I quit. And then since then I've been a coach. I uh, haven't done a lot of coaching lately. I focused a lot of the last two years on my show mm. and was doing mainly that. But I'm now getting into speaking and workshops and stuff like that in addition to the entertainment stuff I do. I'm really – there's a bunch of us out there who are bridging kind of the en- entertainment transformational work 
And it's kind of exciting because I've finally found my people. I no longer, uh, for years, I used to say to people and my shrink, I feel like two people. I feel like I'm Marion Williamson and Lucille Ball. <laughs> and it was just driving me crazy. And then I've been meeting people lately who uh, who say things to me like, I feel like I'm uh, Jim Carrey and Tony Robbins. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're like, you're my twin. So it's it's pretty cool. And and I, I'm, I'm excited and happy that I get to use all of my myself mm-hmm. now in the world. Have you heard Marianne Williamson speak at that theater in LA? Where yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, I have. I've actually had her on my show too. She's oh, pretty cool. cool. She's a cool lady. And your show is Waking, Waking the from, the American, from Dream. the American Dream. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's she's a nice lady. And is it? do you do it weekly? I do. I do. I just took the month off of June. Uh, so I'm, get, I'm getting back on this Thursday um, again. But yeah, weekly. Mm-hmm. That's so cool that you had Marianne Williamson. Uh, do you tend? What are the guests that you tend to have? Like uh, you, it's it's a gamut. It's a real gamut. From I was because of the world I was immersed in three years ago when I started this. I had a lot of comedians to begin with. Love doing comedians because they're smart and inquisitive and creative and um, and articulate. They're just probably the best guests in the world, as you know. Uh, but I, anyone really that I want to learn from. I'll have on. I had John Dean, who was the White House counsel in, for Nixon. He came on and we talked about conservatives and the Republican Party, and like he educated me about so much. I've had some. I've had Marion Williamson, people like that, kind of spiritual teachers, some Buddhist teachers. Uh, uh, you know, just different kind of authors. I, just people I want to have conversations like this with. You mm-hmm. know, it's the fun thing about a podcast is. You know, there's plenty of people out there doing comedy and comics, and they do it really well. And um, there's there's that. And I'm I'm not a comic, but I do love having the in depth conversation. So, uh, and it, the title itself is some a title that I'd had um, before my dad died. I was going to do a documentary. I thought about going around America and talking about the American dream and kind of talking about this conscious evolution of thinking that's emerging and what's next. Um, and then my dad died and that all went on the shelf. And so I decided to use it as the podcast name just because it's kind of where I live. Um, and so I, I feel like I'm always slowly living up to the up to the to the title of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, how many years in between when your mom died and your dad died? Uh, mom died in 97 and dad died in 2008. So it was 11 years. Yeah. And it's been it, this Last a few weeks ago, it was five years for my dad, the anniversary. So that was a big one for me. Yeah. Turned 50, and then the next week it was the five year anniversary. And so it was just, it's been a huge, enormous internal uh, recalibration for me in a lot of good ways. And um, one of the ways is I'm just done doing I, I took I, I will always take care of my dad's legacy and I'm an only child so I, I take care of really his legacy in in, in all manners but um, for I had started a Facebook page it's a fan group it's originally it was a fan page and then I turned it into a group and I was kind of the mother hen over there and about two months ago I handed it over to the fans I'm like I'm done you people mm-hmm. need to take care of this and I've just been done with all of that for two months now and it's really great and and I kind of have to reteach people like this guy on Twitter today, sweet guy, sent me a list of uh, probably off the poster of my dad's. It's like 1,067 filthy words or something. And it was like a list of uh, euphemisms for uh, penis. 
And it was just a list. That's all he tweeted to me. And I was like, and why are you tweeting this to me? And I said to him, you know, you can connect with me, just you and me. You don't need to talk about my dad. And he was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, nothing to be sorry about. I'm just letting you know that I'm a human and we can just have a conversation about whatever. You don't need to be tweeting that to me because I really don't care. (laughs) And I love my dad's fans, but they send me videos of him like, hey. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) seen it a million times. And yes, brilliant. And I don't need to think about my dad every day. Do you think about yours? <laughs> or they think about yours. No, they clearly think about mine, which is fine. But you know, I don't want to have to think about mine every day. Yeah. Um. Well, how is it then when you when you do the one one woman show? Because I imagine that puts it on. Your it's head. a love letter. It's a love letter. It's it's you know it was started. Uh, when was that? It's nine. Oh, let's see. It's twenty thirteen or twenty eleven. November of. 2010, Lewis Black invited my husband and I on a comedy cruise. Lewis was going to have this comedy cruise. It was 400 Lewis Black fans. And we were going on one of those big ships with like 3,000 people on it. And he had all these stand-ups to do nighttime. And they, like, they'd all rotate doing opening feature headliner. And it was all this fun stuff. And he needed a couple of day things. And he knew I was a storyteller. And he said, come on, tell some stories and play some videos of your dad or something. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Literally threw the thing together the morning of with a hangover, uh, picked like eight videos and just I had my own stories that I told because I was a storyteller for 10 years. I had a couple of my own stories, but then also some did I just had plucked out of my dad's memoir, you know, how my mom and dad met and stuff like that. And just told these stories. And it was an hour and 15 minutes and people loved it. I mean, they were just like, oh, my God, you have to tour this. This is amazing. Da, 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 da. And I was like, OK, whatever, whatever. And like three months later, I told I was hanging out with Paul Provenza a lot and still am uh, at the time. And he's like, so do you want to do something with that? And I'm like, um, yeah, OK, I guess. And before I knew it, he had booked me at Montreal just for laughs like that July. Like you're booked. March, he tells me you're booked. And oh, not just in a small venue the 400 beautiful performing arts theater that like colin quinn is going to do his one-man show in like a lot of pressure yeah you gotta get your shit together now (laughs) so i had seen it as an opportunity as uh, aid to 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 let my to let my dad's fans have one more experience with him he had gone into their town every 18 to 24 months for 20 years with a new HBO show. They always knew George was coming to town. Well, he was no longer coming to town. And I thought, well, this could be cool if we could make something and then I could find a way to get to those markets and see them. And so I, I kind of see it as the George Carlin farewell tour. And so it is what it is. It's an entity on its own. It's it's. It's my it's my family's story. Certainly, the first act, the second act is more my story, bouncing off of my dad. But it's intertwined with you know iconic video of him and um, and his routines, bouncing off my life with him. And uh, so it's it's in a place inside of me where I have a lot of love and affection for it. Plus, I get to go play for ninety minutes on stage, which is terrifying and exhilarating as any performer as you know so uh it's it's cool it's cool and it is what it is it's it's this thing you Mm -hmm. know and it's it's a part of me 
Uh, but it's not it's not who I am fully. And that you're going to New York with the show. I right? am. I just got accepted to this really cool uh, festival called All for One. It's a solo uh, f- show festival. And I'll get to do four performances at the Cherry Lane Theater in the Village, which I I've guess, been there. yeah, I've heard it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm very excited about that. And, you know, I'm really excited for New York to see it. My dad was born and raised in New York. New York meant everything to my dad. And to ha- and for me, the, my favorite thing is to have comics come and see the show. When comics are in the audience, for me, I come alive because I know that my dad meant maybe even more to them than they meant to me <laughs> in some way, you know? And and Kevin Smith came a few months ago and literally came backstage and he just he's like picked up showed his arm sleeve and he's like, see this, this is all my snot from crying for ninety minutes. He's a big crybaby. Um <laughs> but there's there is, there's a lot of poignancy in this show. And uh so I love handing it to the comics who you know, who shaped their lives because of my dad, you know. So it's it's cool. All right. I'm going to ask you a question. And I already hate this question, but I meant, I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm wondering. <laughs> but I hate it. Um, are there certain comics – and I bet you get it a lot. Are there certain comics that you look at that you think, oh, they're continuing uh, the legacy of my dad? Yes. And maybe not even consciously. I think – I mean, I think most comics are, you know, standing on the shoulders of my dad or prior, basically, at, mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, there's certainly older comics, too, that they stand on the shoulders of. But um, and yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, Lewis Black in his own way, absolutely, because he's a political comic. He talks a lot about politics and he's fearless and he's angry and fed up. And um and now that he's over 60, he's kind of the elder statement, statesman of this community in right. some ways. Um, and then certainly Bill Maher, you know, because of his stuff. But he's doing it in his own way. Uh, and then, you know, and Provenza – funny thing is I didn't know any comedians before my dad died. And then my dad died and they started calling me. So – and it's been incredible. I mean that's – one of the most amazing things was the, the the love that the comedy community poured out to me and, and lifted me up with. And then I um, met Provenza and he started in just introducing me to so many amazing com- comedians that you don't see on TV, that you don't know anywhere because the mainstream doesn't deal with them at all. And the one person who I love and adore and, th- and, and think he's just crushing – uh, all boundaries is Doug Stanhope. I just uh, any man who can do a routine that talks about how abortion is a green thing. It, it's just it's so thought provoking. He's so fearless. He doesn't give a shit in a way my dad didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's really it's important to always have that voice in the culture. I don't always agree with everything he talks about. I sometimes worry about his health. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, I take my hat off to anyone who's willing to tell that level of truth uh, fearlessly on stage the way he does. Love him for that. He actually just recently did the Dr. Drew podcast here, which I, I haven't listened yet. How was that, Did they have an intervention? (laughs) Um, they had a, they had a. It was very good. Okay. I'm going to have to listen now. You should listen to it. That sounds amazing. Well, I think, yeah, because I think everyone was like, What's going to happen? Because doesn't Doug Stanhope have a whole thing about Dr. Drew in his act? Uh, he did for a while, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, he and, says, he, and he, yeah, yeah. He he said, like for instance, uh, Dr. Drew is to s- medicine what uh, David Blaine is to science. 
I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's just a, a good one-liner line. that illustrates so he... what it was. So Drew let him come on, and Drew kind of started the show and said, what's your problem? And let oh, him wow. go okay. at it for like 30 minutes. And then for the next 30 minutes, it was kind of like it, it was amicable. I mean, was it tense? everyone shook hands at the end. It was fine. It was not. Yeah, Doug Stanhope, he's a stand-up guy. It wasn't that tense. Is, but I mean, Stanhope right. was obviously into this. Like, I emailed his... He flew from Alaska to here for no other reason than to do this. Wow. Yeah, he's into it. So yeah. it was a good episode. Really good episode. That's Everyone the thing. You know, it's like uh, – DrDrew.com. Uh, yeah. So after you listen to our podcast yes. here today, quickly <laughs> move over there. Uh, that's the thing about Doug. He – and kind of like my dad too. It's like, you know, your job is to kind of make these sweeping statements on stage to kind of shake people up. But when it comes to one-on-one connection, it's really about being human. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad always said, you know, he didn't like groups, but individuals he loved, you know. And uh, so I, I kind of see that with Doug, too, because, uh, I, you know, he gave another comic I know some shit online a lot and then tweeted to him like a personal message like, hey, you know, we're just fucking around here. You know, and it's like, well, which is it? Which is it? Right, you know, right. so it's, it's that's interesting. I really can't wait to hear that. Yeah, I'll be good. Who was the comic that he gave shit to? I don't want to talk. I'm not going to talk tales out of school. What is that? Was that the line? Tell tales out of school. Tell yeah. tales out of school. Yes. And I remember at one point looking that up. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah. Tell tales out. Like, why are telling tales in school okay? I think it's like repeating what happened on uh, the playground or something. Oh, okay. Okay. But good. I just figured if it's on Twitter, then it's public. But I'll go, I'll go look it up. Okay. Not a big deal. Yeah. Um, I think we should do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Right. This is where, where people tweet us things they think or do and they wonder if it's is it just them or is it everyone. Oh, good. The human thing we were talking exactly. about earlier. Exactly. Exactly. Nice. All right. D. Taylor 12 111 says, wiping debate, me or everyone. My girlfriend recently told me she looks at the toilet paper after wiping to make sure she's done, her or everyone. It's everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Be, I th- we're fascinated. Like, it, you know, the minute we start pooping, we're like, wow, look at that. Right. <laughs> I remember. I have a, I, I cherish this memory. I don't know why. But I remember a friend of mine yelling through the door years ago, I wish you were a guy so, I, so you could come in here and, I could sh- and, and look at this. <laughs> like, I, have to, I wish I could show you this. <laughs> I don't know what came out of it, but something that I needed a, it was to fascinating, be a dude obviously. to appreciate. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But really, your own shit is more fascinating to you than oh, to anyone else. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and I think like once you have kids, you, you like your kids' shit's okay. You know, it's right. like picking up my own dog's yes. dog shit is fine, but anyone else's dog shit is disgusting. Right. In fact, I'm when I pick up my own dog's dog shit, it's like I'm proud of him. This came out of him. <laughs> exactly. I'm so glad things are, are happening well. We're doing it right. Right. And I guess with your kids, although you probably don't pick that up. Right. Hopefully, it's the yeah, same. Probably not. How many kids do you have? Zero. Oh. I'm a dog person. Okay. Yeah. Um, as am I at this point. Gotcha. But uh-huh. one day I might have kids. And by the way, listeners, I'm not saying I'm pregnant. No, she's not. So please don't keep guessing if I'm pregnant because that just makes me feel like you're saying I'm fat. That's very strange. Cody Mapan says, after typing a word that I'm not confident about its spelling, I type gibberish, gibberish just to make sure spell check is still working. I've done that. 
I've, I purposefully uh, type something, spelled something wrong just to see if the dynamic spell check picks it up. I go to Google and type it in Google and like check my spelling. Yeah. Because my, my dad was a freak about spelling and pronunciation to the point now that I'm kind of got like a twitch around it. <laughs> so God forbid George Carlin's daughter spells anything wrong right. on the internet. I would, my dad, if he's anywhere in an afterlife, would be mad at me. So. All right. If you're a freak about pronunciation, if someone is speaking to you and they use a word incorrectly, A, what do you do? And B, if you then have to use that word, will you use their incorrect pronunciation just so they don't feel weird? Okay. I don't correct people because I was corrected so much and it made me feel like a shameful, dirty woman. (laughs) Uh, And boy, I would probably use my own pronunciation and just hope that I was like not doing it to change anything but i'm not gonna you know what i've 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 healed my codependence enough that i pronounce my own words that's good that's good z indy says oh okay this is a callback to an earlier just me everyone totally with the just me or everyone about being sad when someone following on the highway turns off i call them my driving buddy so someone had written in to say do you ever feel sad when like someone's been next totally. to you and they leave you totally. do yes totally like especially if you're like at a speeding driving buddy yeah like someone who else who wants to snake through the traffic with you <laughs> and you feel like you're like it's us against them and yeah. we're gonna find the openings and we know that we're a team and then yeah then they like take the exit or take the other thing and you're like there they go. Now I'm alone all again. Oh my God, I'm so excited. We're discussing this because I've never talked about that phenomenon with anyone else on the planet ever. Uh, I think a lot of things like that might happen in this segment. I'm There's excited. Of, yeah. This is good. You'd be surprised. Well, you wouldn't. You would know. But one might be surprised at how many things people are concerned with at all times. <laughs> Kate Inman. When I find an old birthday card of mine, I always look inside to see if there is money in there that I might have forgotten. I don't do that. Mm-mm. And in fact, when I come – and this is a new thing, which – I wonder what this means. When I come across a stack of old things, uh, I always think, oh, I would like to hunker down and read that. And then I find that I don't even want to crack it open. Like I don't want to – I don't want to feel whatever I'm going to feel if I read all of it. I feel like that's bad. I should I should have a good relationship with it. Well, it's interesting because it's like why why do we keep it? Yes, and then if we keep it and we don't want to re-experience it, so why are we still keeping it? Yeah. You know? These and, are good questions. And then it's like – and then at some point it's like it's so meaningless I'm going to throw it away. It's like, oh, there's a lot going on there. That's the thing. I can't throw it away because it's like this is – I don't this, – this was someone's meaningful sentiment at yeah. one point. But now it's cluttering my shelf. See, yes. I, I can put that perspective on too. Like I can become declutterer queen. Like, okay – Ruthless time, time to like create some empty space in this house because I love that feeling. Too. I need, I need to be more ruthless because yeah. I I'm just there's like pi- there's too many piles of of things that it's like I don't even want to go through. Yeah, that. you need to like get awaken your inner space Nazi. <laughs> I don't even know. I just have an image of that. Is your house there. pretty neat? No, I mean not necessarily, but but, but when I get in that mode, man. Yeah. Oh. Because that feeling of, of of approaching your desk and it being all like just empty space. Oh my god, is so good! I feel like a goddess of the universe yes. when it happens. I, 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 yeah. I rarely experience. I know, it. I know, rarely too. But but it's worth it, man. But just lately, so like the back part of my desk is cluttered, but I'll just clear the front half of it, and even that makes me feel good. Yeah, it's, if you see the wood yeah. again, 
it's very exciting yes. when you can see the wood. Gary, are you neat? Uh, yeah. How how are you? Although my office here would not reflect that, right? And it drives me insane. Oh. How how did you become neat? Well, was, your mom is super I was neat, right? Into it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you just come by it. I yeah, it was never an option. Never an option. Like your room was always clean as a kid. Yes. Do you make your bed every morning? Yes, absolutely. Oh, see, I don't. Actually, that's the one thing I do. Yeah, my husband, like, he tries to because he was raised to do that. He was raised a good Catholic boy. I was raised by wolves. <laughs> um, so, but when I do make my bed in the morning, man, I feel like a champion. Yeah. That is the one thing that I actually do because then it like it's like there's a little bit of tidiness yeah. in this There's a little disarray. order. Yeah, yeah, there's a little order. Like, if I am washing my sheets so there's no sheets on the bed, that... I, that makes me uncomfortable. Just to have the bed completely <laughs> naked. naked. Yeah. You don't have more than one set of sheets? I do, actually. But <laughs> but she has a good sheets and the no. not so good sheets. You know what it is? It's that <laughs> when – what? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think when this comes up that I – Because that bugs me too, but – No, I... you know what it is? Here's what it is. This is when it happens. In the morning, if I know I'm going to be washing these sheets later that day – I still feel the need – if I'm not going to put on the new ones, I feel the need to make the bed. Mm. Oh, even it's with like, the dirty like sheets. like I'll make the bed with the dirty sheets and then undo it and take them off and redo it later. Wow. Yeah. I won't, I won't do that thing where I take the sheets off the bed and then later on I put different sheets on. But maybe I make the bed in a really fast, crappy way. Like it's not all – it's not <laughs> – It's not Actually – in the morning, what I do is I go, <laughs> I go over to Daniel's side of the bed, and then I like pull the comforter. Like I, if the comforter is hanging, I'm not OCD really, <laughs> but if the comforter, if if everything is a little bit lopsided, Uneven. that drives me insane. Uh-huh. Yeah. In fact, sometimes if he's in bed, I'll go around to his side and I'll say, "Can I just pull this a little bit?" <laughs> so that's healthy. Okay. CP Morgan says, "Fellow scab pickers." <laughs> All right. So, Kelly, here's something that's come up on this show. I don't know how you're going to feel about it. Some of us, Gary and and me included, like to pick (laughs) – I don't usually feel uncomfortable Uh, about this. uh, Scabs uh, off the top of our heads. Yeah, well – There's something special about picking a head scab. Yeah, my dad had a whole bit about that. Oh, really? Yeah, you should hear it. It's great. Yeah, he's had a whole how bit. How did we miss this? Yeah, he, it's, it's it's like 70s or 80s, but yeah, and how it is, it's really special because you can't see it, and then you have to bring it around and examine it under, oh under a light. I'm ashamed that no one has pointed this out to I us before. I am too. Yeah, he has a great bit about this. Yeah. Wow. Because it's typical wow. typical of my dad. He's a bit about everything, you know. But yeah, yeah, this is a great bit about that. I almost, it almost feels hacky to bring it up to you then. <laughs> no, no. It's it's actually – but and I think it's great because, you know, people don't know a lot of his earlier stuff. But, yeah. But it is true. I think a head scab is a is a bit of a treasure because of that. <laughs> right. OK. So he, this guy wants to know, uh-huh. C.P. Morgan's, how about feet skin? You know what I'm talking about. A little dry skin or callus can keep – and you keep on going. Yeah. I'll admit it, yes. But it's not – I feel like the human body was intended for us to pick scabs off our head because your hand is just right there and it's just so easy if you're leaning. Whereas yeah. I feel like you can you – can, if you really hunker down to pick some, <laughs> a bit of skin off your foot, time, like, uh, time will elapse and you'll be like, ow, I feel like I've 
I've been in this weird I'm, position for too long. Right. Or I've actually started to make a hole. Like yes. that's what happens to me. Like yes. it'll be like, oh, a little dry skin, a little dry skin. Oh, dry skin. Oh, oh pick, pick, pick. Ow. Like yes, now, I I'm, that. now I've harmed myself. Mm-hmm. I've gone too far. <laughs> I've gone too far. And then, you, and then I, it's probably like how I imagine teenage boys feel after masturbating. You just feel like, what am I doing with my life? I feel, in, I feel instantly dirty yes. when, I, when I've lost time yes. from trying to like pick something. Yes. And I think, oh, I'm so alone. But now yeah. I'm not. Right. I'm not no. alone. Welcome. See, Join I get our it. Community. To, it's everyone. Of all the weird things we've talked about, we've admitted to and talked about on this show, I feel like picking head scabs is one of the most has one of the most passionate followings and responses. <laughs> no wonder your dad did a bit about it. Pink Frost says, seeing people in non-weather appropriate clothes, sweaters, and summer shorts in winter makes me physically uncomfortable. It's people like you. That are a problem for people like me because I'm one of those people who likes to wear sweaters and people or I'll wear a coat inside and people will say you're making me uncomfortable. Or you're making me nervous. And I feel like then find something to do about that. Now, the shorts in the winter, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. I just I feel like a lesser of a hearty human being. Right. Because I think oh, I'm so weak. I have to wear 10,000 layers because I hate to be cold. Yeah. So that just I do. I do. I feel like even that person's showing off their Nordic survivability yeah. or something you know right and i'm a sweater person too i'm like you i always bring one because i don't never want to be sitting yeah. in the air conditioning draft Ugh. No. I, I uh i still remember i went over to a friend's house when i was young and it was i feel like this happened a lot when when uh when i was a kid and then it turned out that we were going to the movies and i didn't know and i was wearing shorts and i was cold for the whole movie the and i didn't even want to go to a movie the worst. That's childhood. Yep. You dragged to things you don't want to go to and feeling like, where's my mom? Um, all right. Bryant Rich. When someone else loads the dishwasher, I simultaneously think, oh, how nice. And what maniac came up with this configuration? <laughs> yes, everyone has their own way of loading the dishwasher. Um, my way, and I know this is not the popular way, I don't like to stick forks up. The head, the Yeah, like, no, the I tines. stick them down too. Because you you stab yourself otherwise. You, you would, yeah. But I believe people who know, and by that I mean dishwasher manufacturers, my mom <laughs> and Daniel say that it's better to put it up because then it gets they get know, more stuff yes. on it. Yeah, I don't you know. know my cleaner. stuff feels clean. I don't yeah, know. Me too. After twenty years being with my husband, thank God we are congruent in the dishwasher. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I went a little his way, he went a little my way, but we now agree on basic dishwasher alignment. So, I will stick a mug on the lower level if there's no room on the top. Oh yeah, level, I'm okay with that. that makes sense. Top I'm okay level, with yeah. that. Yeah, you, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, if I'm, you want a you know, full thing, you know, pretty unconventional. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I mean, that's my art, Gary. Yes. Do you guys have a dishwasher? Yes. And how do you put the forks in? The correct way. Which is the way my mom does it? Yes. Ugh. Don't you ever stab yourself? No. How about like sharp knives? Like when you're going well, to grab sharp knives? Knives always go sharp end down, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't understand. Are you are you throwing a baseball while you're picking the forks out after they're clean? Why is your hand flowing around so much? <laughs> just be careful. Yeah, I think I'm not looking. Yeah, that's just the, the wrong oh, no. way to be doing it. You know what it is? Try this on for size. Okay. Dirty dishwasher. I hope an dirty dishwasher. And you're putting in a it's pretty there's a lot of stuff in there and you're putting in a spoon. But the spoon is not as tall as the fork. But the spoon's going to a different compartment. Oh, you compartmentalize your 
Utensils? Yeah. Oh, You're see. not supposed to, I'm, according to my mom. Because, because they'll, they'll spoon. They'll, right. They'll, or as no, my because... mom said, they'll cuddle. And then <laughs> it's the, and then Brad Williams was on this episode. He's like, I think it was Brad Williams. He's like, but there's a word for that. It's spoon. I'm like, I know. But she says they'll cuddle. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> yeah. You go north-south with, with uh, spoons to prevent that. Oh, wow. my God. I think he needs- You're the king of the dishwasher. Truly. Or is- I'm really yeah. not, but I don't know. All right. So forks can all – and you don't need to worry about forks forking? No. Okay. Spoons north-south. <laughs> yes. Knives all down. Correct. Okay. Okay. We're done. We're, yeah. good. we're good with that. Wow. wow. I, I'm 50 and I'm learning this. No, that's good. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. I, I had it beaten into me. There's a lot of beating going on in right. your home. I, there really is. Wow. But not, lit- was not literal, right? No, it was a Catholic thing. It was just a mental beating. Yeah. Right. yeah. Guilt. Guilt. Hell. Do you like to be with a woman who is neat or not neat? I don't care. Are you usually the neat one in the relationship, though? I try not to be, but my house is neat. <laughs> <laughs> like I try not to like I try not you to, try not to care I try not to care yeah okay. and like I I make a concerted effort not to move something like I will notice if some shit gets picked up and put back down in the place it does not go uh-huh. but I, that will not be corrected until the person is uh, gone you're OCD <laughs> maybe <laughs> just a little bit well I feel like that's considered but then is it I don't corrected want... it is with resentment no it's corrected with it's time to put things Hang out where they at go. my place. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that would bother you. She and then I'll leave. <laughs> yeah. And then you can put it in the right place and then everyone will be happy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not really. No. I, I mean, I, I would yeah. be happy. It wouldn't be not enjoyable for you. But no, because no, I feel like the problem with that is usually the person who moves it is like, oh, God damn it. If I want this moved, I have to move it. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't care. I mean, listen, it's probably different in your situation. In my situation, that's... Oh, I'm, not, I'm talking about my childhood now, not... Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, there, was, there was always an order in my house. Like, things go in a certain place. And Do you have lots of files? Not, not so much. <laughs> I'm not as organized with that as I should be. But, like, I don't know. I, I tried really hard when I turned, like, 19 and went to college to just be like, fuck it, everything goes where it goes. And no, <laughs> that's not... Okay. Yeah. That'd be the best sketch. It's too much chaos after a while. Yeah. yeah. That's what happens to me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have bags of like unorganized shit, but it's in that bag and therefore it's organized. Yeah. Right. You so know where like, it is. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, I'm not, you're what not coming over to my house. and sock drawers look like? Perfectly but- folded and organized by color. You, Kelly? <laughs> uh, or, uh, folded, uh, not perfectly. My socks. The lately, socks are organized. Socks have been color. lately organized. I've been enjoying that. Underwear drawer, it's, it's a little out of control right now. I need to get in there. And it'll happen. Like in a month, I'll be like, fuck it. And I'll turn it up on the bed and I'll just sort and fold and put it all. Those ones go there and those go there and little bra things go there. It'll be better soon. Oh, yeah. Mine, I open it and there's just a tangle of under things in a kind of a ball <laughs> that makes it like I have to push it down to close it. And then it's like I fish out some socks and underwear. And in the back of the drawer are socks and underwear that I don't wear. Yeah. So I it's think it's like two or, its own order. definitely two or three times a year I go in and work on those kind of things. Those kind yeah. of, you know, those drawers. I even have drawer dividers. I don't hmm. do anything with them. Zanera hmm. so Park says, I know, I know many youngsters do this, but even now as an adult, when I pour fountain soda, I include a bit of each soda. Well, one, one day I realized 
It doesn't taste better when I do my splash <laughs> of lemonade in the Diet Coke or yeah. whatever. Like One the, day you realized? Yeah. Is it clearly always that been the case, but it was the novelty? Yes, but that's what I'm saying. All of a sudden, one day I realized, despite the fun of this, it's not, it's, I don't like it. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, yeah, what did it sound like I was saying? I don't know. I misunderstood. I... I'm always, te- that's what I'm saying. I'm always tempted. Yeah. But, and I feel like I still might be tempted to do a tiny, just a tiny splash of Mr. Pibb or something, because where do they have Mr. Pibb except See, I didn't grow up with those kind of fountain things. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, I think, you know. I just that's like I want my drink to be my drink. Oh. Don't be adding all that weird stuff. There's enough weird stuff in the one drink. Right. I don't need twelve flavors. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm trying to think when I first encountered that. Well when you can do your own at, at yeah. you know, at certain restaurants. But in college we had the the um the fountain things. Mm. Have you seen the crazy new fountains? Like the digital fountains? Yes. No. You, it's, oh. it's one thing. It's a fucking and all these buttons? Right. So it's yes. like a digital screen. It's crazy. So it's got, let's say, like... Like an old-fashioned coffee vending machine situation? No, like something out of Minority Report. It, like truly, it's a giant truly. digital screen that's yes. touchscreen. And then it's got every, like, soda logo from that company, right? So let's say it's Coke. It's got, like, you know, like mug root beer, Coke. Yeah. Wow. So then you click on Coke, and then it's like, all right, what flavor? Cherry? Orange, cherry, Diet? vanilla, or- pomegranate, passion fruit. Pomegranate? It's crazy. It's wow. crazy. So it's like there's... 12 soda selections, and then for each one, there's like nine sub-flavor selections. Zanera Park would go fucking insane if she ever came into this, in, mm-hmm. into contact with this. It would take forever to try to do a full suicide off one of those machines. See, and this, and this is what it's come to in our culture. Can, can you even do that, though, or does it give you the 12 ounces? No, or no, no. It you, give, can, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, it's crazy. But this is the thing. is like this is the false choices we have. I know. <laughs> I get trapped. I talk about that a lot, actually. I, I get very hung up on tiny, insignificant decisions. So I would be at there for like two hours. Yeah. Or you just have to like just keep like a mantra, you know, Which diet, would be diet Coke, Diet Coke, Diet Coke, <laughs> Diet Coke, Nothing, uh, just Diet Coke, Diet right, Coke. Blinders. Yes. Well, the first time you come in contact with it, you're screwed. I spent 20 minutes at it because I had to know what every option was before yeah. I could well, make the decision. I was just overwhelmed. I'm like, oh, this is the thing that it's going to – I'm not going to know how to operate it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is fairly intimidating. It's, it it's the, the touch screen is like like fifteen inches wide. It's 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 intense. Where where do you find these movie theater? Movie the oh, most wow. most places I've ever seen is a movie theater. I've yeah. seen it at one restaurant. Yeah, I just went to a movie recently, and I'm trying to think if they had that. Yeah, it's it's the new thing. Oh, you know what? We didn't get anything to drink. That's mm-hmm. why I don't know. I want to experience this, though. Oh, you will. I'm going to have to show up early. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Amy M. Love says, I get very possessive over my workspace garbage can. I don't like when anyone else uses it. I can relate to that from back when I had a workspace garbage can. For for a number of reasons. One, someone else could fill it up. Two, if someone put something in there besides paper. Like food. Yeah, that's, Yeah. that's gross. That's mean. Yeah. That's rude. That's fair. You know what? Your workspace, you know, it's kind of like your own little fiefdom or something, you know? <laughs> really and is. so you need to like – it's a territorial thing. I, yeah. I understand that. It's perfectly perfectly normal and human. Now, as someone who has dogs. Yes. When you're out walking them, where do you throw the bag of poop? I always carry it home and put it in our trash can or – if there's a couple of neighbors along the way that have their trash can accessible 
And I know they're also dog people or they kind of, you know, like I see other bags in there. I'll throw them in there. Too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a dumpster. Uh, there was construction happening a few blocks away and there was a dumpster there, which was perfect. Even the, except my fear was always that the thing would arc like all the way over and <laughs> yeah. miss the dumpster. Yeah. But I don't have that kind of Herculean strength. But now it's gone. So I feel like if I find a trash can out and it's clear that the garbage hasn't been picked up yet, yeah. then that's fair game. You don't want to do like a fresh can. Like, no. That would be so that, unfair. That used to happen to me sometimes. Right. And the whole week then you have that. Right. Yeah. That Yeah. That, and that, that fly. Then Ugh. you got to carry it home and be responsible. Like, okay, it's my dog. It's my dog shit. It's going in my trash can. Right. I'm doing the right thing. Right. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having for me. For doing great. my show. This was really, really fun. Um, let's tell everyone where they should go to find out more about you. They can follow you on Twitter. They at- can follow me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. Um, you can find me on official Kelly Carlin Facebook. Uh, KellyCarlin.com is my website where you can find my podcast and my serious show and, and more information about a Carlin Home Companion when I start doing it again in the fall. And uh, that's that. Oh, and I'm going to be next Saturday, I'm going to be doing uh, Kyle Cease is doing a three-day transformational weekend at the Sheraton in L.A. And I'm going to be doing a talk on July 20th. Yeah. Although this will air after that. Oh, okay. So how did it go? So it it was amazing. (laughs) I was was incredible. (laughs) That's what I've been hearing. Uh, so, yeah, you can just find me on my website. Come talk, talk to me on Twitter. I love Twitter. Did someone have Kelly Carlin without the underscore? No, I'm a dork. I thought, I need a space between my name <laughs> because that's the way it is in the real world. I didn't know what about Twitter was at yeah. all. But now I'm kind of happy. I'm like, fuck you. I have an underscore. That's Deal right. With it, people. I, yeah, I don't have one. You're going to have to like do the find the little underscore on your <laughs> keyboard for me. Right. That's right. It weeds out. Kind of weeds out some right? stuff. Yeah, the yeah. lazier ones. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank this you for really inviting fun. me. Thank you so much. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. If you'd like to email us, it's A-R-I-Y-M-B-F at AdamCarolla.com. <clears throat> and if you're going to buy something on Twitter, which you are because they have everything, why not click through the banner? Or Amazon, you mean. Oh, you said Twitter. Buy everything on Twitter. That makes no sense. I can't believe I said that. Thank you for correcting me. Absolutely. Although I bet there will come a time when you can buy stuff on Twitter. I hope not. Yeah, but this isn't going to wait that long. No. (laughs) (laughs) What I meant – thank you, Gary. What I meant to say was if you're going to buy something on Amazon – which you are, because they have everything. Right. Click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It does not cost you anything extra, but it helps the show. Um, and thank you so much, everyone who has been clicking through the banner. We love that. And thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, tell a friend. I love you. Bye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show?